You're listening to season four of This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Creation Care Summit, a grassroots gathering of Nazarenes. You can join us in Flint, Michigan this October as we dream about what a creation care movement in the Church of the Nazarene could look like. There are more details over at creationcaresummit.eventbrite.com. Today on the podcast, we're hearing from Reverend Stephanie Lobdell, chaplain at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Thanks for all you do for young clergy, and thanks for tuning in. Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend Stephanie Lobdell. Stephanie is the campus pastor at MBNU. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Excited to be here. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I am um, fourth generation Nazarene, actually. So wow. I blood a bit. Yep. My uh, great-grandparents, um, they were very nominal believers um, and during the war, they moved out to Bremerton, Washington uh, to work in the shipyard where my great grandpa worked. Mm-hmm. And he had a very pesty, um, I guess, persistent uh, coworker. And he kept inviting him to church at Bremerton Church, the Nazarene. And they went. And my great grandparents and my grandma at the time uh, came to know the Lord, all went to the altar. I mean, you know, the whole bit. And they were incredibly devoted lay people. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, um, my grandparents, they joined the Nazarene church as well. Um, so I have a long heritage of faithful lay people serving in the church. And then my dad is actually an ordained elder um, in the church of the Nazarene as well. So um, I came into it knowing that this is kind of my family. Mm-hmm. I've been in there. I don't know anything different, honestly. So now I have my children and I'm raising them up um, in the church of the Nazarene as well. And it's just a part of who I am. That's great. Yeah. So kind of tell us the story of um, how you ended up being a pastor. Yeah. Interesting. It's so fun because last week was NYC. Mm-hmm. And, um, all NYCs, it's always fun to reminisce around NYC season, right? Yeah. But this one was particularly poignant because it was my 20th anniversary, right? Which made me feel kind of old, but um, also very cool. Um, I had a uh, in my eighth grade year, had started kind of feeling some promptings. I was when I was really kind of to embrace my faith and the practice of faith in my own way through, you know, daily scripture reading and things like that. I'm just on my own initiative um, as a 14 year old. And it was feeling kind of called um, towards some kind of vocational ministry. But um, <laughs> um, in my head, you know, it crossed my mind, like for a moment in time, perhaps you'd, I'd be a lead pastor like my dad. He'd been a youth pastor, but then was serving as a lead pastor. And I was like, oh, I'm, you know, we have a lot in common. I like speaking and, you know, I could, I could do that, but it literally just passed through my brain, left no trace and went on its way. Um, and I will, I will return to why I think that was later, but, um, that summer I went to NYC and just felt that just the weight of the spirit and just that very, very heavy way, um, just drawing me into that, just inviting me into, um, this life of service. And at the time I was like, I'm called to ministry. And of course, now I would say that in a much more nuanced way, you know, I was called to vocational Christian service, you know, cause we're all called to ministry. But at the time as a 14 year old, I was just so zealous uh, for serving the church. And at the time I very much interpreted that explicitly as a call to, um, cross-cultural min- missions. Hmm. 
So I just pursued that like wholeheartedly. I immediately enrolled in Spanish. I took as many trips as I could. I'd been to, by the time I graduated high school, I'd been to, I think five of the continents, if you, not Australia and not Antarctica. But wow. other than that, like I had, I just got to work um, pursuing that life and went to Mid-America originally as a missions major. Um, and then realized upon arriving, as you're exploring what missions looks like, it's changes over the generations and rightly so. Um, I really needed a quote unquote marketable skill. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to be a teacher. I had no interest in nursing. And so I was like, no, I really want to pursue, you know, theological education. So I pursued Christian ed um, with a missions minor and a Spanish double major because, you know, I like to do all the things at once. <laughs> And um, pursued that with it in my mind that I'd be going over there pastoring and educating um, like the um, the people of the wherever I was sent, you know, mm -hmm. and helping build churches and create that and whatever else. And so I kind of pursued that um, as my as my calling. And so um, my husband and I got married the summer before my senior year of college. So he was off doing this terrible job. It was so bad. It's one of those, like, we're poor and we're newly married. So work whatever job you can. Sure. And uh, right. You know, you do what you gotta do. And so he worked that job and I worked part-time at Starbucks. So we would have insurance and not die. And, uh, I finished my senior year in America. And then we, three weeks later, we got on a plane and we flew to Sicily, um, wow. where we served for the church as missionary volunteers for about a little shy of a year. Um, it was kind of a new work trying to do some planting there and um, it was hard. It was very challenging work for a number of reasons. Um, the culture there um, for one reason, but also on the missionary went on home assignment and there was just some, some unique challenges. Um, but during that time, I felt very strongly convicted that I do not have adequate education to continue this work. Like I need to go to seminary like stat. And so we went back and um, before I start doing damage, frankly. Um, so we went back and um, partly because my mother-in-law was ill and my husband mm -hmm. needs to be with her, but also to pursue my, my graduate degree. So we, um, I'm at seminary. Tommy's interning at College Church in Olathe. I'm work, both working at a bank, you know, like you do. And um, he's like, I'm tired of interning. I want to get into ministry. Let's just do this. I'm going to apply. The DS had reached out to us about a small uh, church in rural Missouri, about an hour from Kansas City. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's explore it. Why not? You know, and he's like, it's a lead pastorate, but you know, yeah, we'll figure that out. So we get there and he does the interview and that's great. He's so lovable in all the ways. And so they, um, of course, want him to be their pastor. So I'm like, great, let's do this. So we move there. And um, they have the first service to like, in, I can never think of the word, like basically like the induction, mm. you know, what they say, you are now our pastor here, have this shepherd staff from the Christmas play to indicate <laughs> that you are our shepherd, have this Bible, teach the word, have this chalice, you know, present the sacraments, those kind of things. And so they're up there doing this thing. Okay. And I'm sitting in the pew and I am weeping like tears. Mm. And I'm sure the image around me, I mean, everyone around was like, oh, what a good wife. Like, she's so supportive. She's so great. But in my heart, I was like, no, like, I am supposed to be up there with you. Mm -hmm. And I recognize my own personality. I am hardcore FOMO. Like, I'm going to miss out. Like, I need to be up there. I don't like to be in the background. Like, bring me up. Let's do this. But also, I think in my heart was awakening this sense of, no, I think, I think I'm supposed to pastor with you. And so it took us a few angry conversations for me to be able to articulate that well to, to, to my husband first. Mm -hmm. um, and so I finished, we, we moved there and he was pastoring that first semester um, 
I was still, obviously that was my second semester of seminary. And then we approached the board about it and said, you've had co-pastors before. We would really like to do this where we need to work together. And we did a terrible job, frankly, presenting it to the board. We were like, Hey, it's a two for one. Come on. You know, it's like a deal. It's like a coupon. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think out of our own insecurity, but they, they were like, yeah, let's do this. And I preached my first sermon ever and they elected me as co-pastor. Um, but I was still in seminary and Tommy wasn't. And mm -hmm. so he did the bulk of the preaching at the time. And um, then when he, I finished and he went to seminary, I did the bulk of the preaching. And I kind of regret how we did that. I think being in the pulpit more um, early on, they would have understood me as pastor mm. more than just like the pastor's wife who also happens to be going to seminary, you know? So that took a while to kind of earn that spot. It was also a rural, con a rural congregation that um, just had a different kind of worldview. Um, but that's how we got into that space. And the more and more I've... Um, explored that I look back to that 14 year old Stephanie and I think of why I didn't have the imagination for this to begin with mm. this could have looked different um but um and I write about this a little bit um in my in my book about the fact that I did not have the imagination for that because I had not seen it mm -hmm. um I had seen a few people preach um a few women preach mostly missionaries though because yeah. that's cool. We're cool with them preaching. Right. Right. And I'd seen it. Maybe I'd seen like a, maybe a s associate pastor preach, but always on Sunday night. Cause that's like the JV squad. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so for me, seeing a pastor preach with power and under the spirit from the pulpit and be female for me was like, no, I, I, I didn't have space for that. I had to need a new brain category for that thing, which mm -hmm. is insane because of our, our history, but that's my reality. That was my experience. Sure. Um, and, and this is a funny little tidbit with my dad took his first senior pastor at when I was 12. Well, he had had one when I was a baby, but when he took another one, when I was um, like 11 or 12, and that's where I grew up most of my, most of my junior high and high school years. Um, he had this office that had a, like a two part office. Like the front part was um, like a, for a meeting space, was like a big room for meetings. And then there was like the inner sanctum, mm. you know, like the study, mm. but there was like a, um, there was a bathroom in his um, inner office. I was like, oh, it's like a, a master bathroom, master, <laughs> like a clerical master bathroom situation. So I go in, I'm like, this is awesome. This is so cool. You can put your stuff in here. And then I look and there is a urinal in the bathroom. Oh, urinal, right? And so um, in, my, in my 11 year old mind, I'm thinking, mm. you know, like my first thought was, what if you have to go number two? Like literally as a child, that is what I was thinking, you know? And then looking back, you know, 10 years later, I'm like, holy cow, I wasn't allowed in that office. Mm. And the weight of that realization, bore, oh, it felt so heavy. It mm. felt so heavy, you know? And I realized in small ways, my imagination had been shaped in this specific way. And my vocation had been, you know, directed um, because of some of those experiences, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, but the Lord is good and the Lord is so kind and he gets us where we need to go. Um, mm. even if it takes a divergent path. And so 10 and a half years, uh, lead pastor alongside my husband, co-pastors, mm. um, lots of things I could say on that topic. If you want to do a special on that one, um, <laughs> so many wonderful things, mm. so many hard things, Yeah. but, but overall just grace upon grace upon grace. Um, and I am now uh, 15 days into my new job, which is campus pastor at Mount Vernon uh, Nazarene University. 
Yay. Um, I am in over my head, friends, but <laughs> I have a wonderful team around me and I'm so hopeful and I feel so confirmed in the spirit that this mm. is, this is the next step, um, in my vocation. It's the first time I've not been a co-pastor mm. and, um, that is a significant step. And I think in some ways I felt I walked under this umbrella of Tommy, like, oh, oh they can hire us both. But, oh, sure, she's a female pastor. Come alongside. and But somehow covered under this sense of there's still a guy there, right? Yeah. And even though the churches that I have pastored came to see me very quickly as their pastor, particularly my congregation in Idaho, embraced me as their pastor apart from Tommy from the get-go. Mm. They always had space for me as who I was. Mm. I had nothing to prove to them. But in my own heart, I think I always felt a little bit like I was B-team. I wasn't truly a lead pastor because I had this like protection from who he was, you know? And uh, now, and my husband, he was so kind as he's been encouraging me to pursue this opportunity at the university. And he said it was Stephanie, because I told him that, that insecurity I felt about, I'm only a pastor because you're here. Mm -hmm. But if you weren't here, they wouldn't have hired me. And that was a wound, man. That was a wound. And so he basically said, Stephanie, it's time for that lie to die. And you need to go into this and you need to show them who you are. And we're going to walk into that space. And Mm -hmm. every moment along the way with Mount Vernon, there has been no question. I asked the Lord to make it so clear. And there has just been peace and confirmation and peace and confirmation. Am I terrified? Yes. Will I probably make mistakes? Absolutely. But do I feel, I feel so free. Mm -hmm. I feel so affirmed and I feel extremely hopeful about my vocation, but also about just what God is doing in this university and, um, in our church. So here we are. Gosh, I love that. Um, tell me about the, the kind of step in the middle there. How did you get from Missouri to Idaho? How did you get from Idaho to Mount Vernon? Kind of tell me that story. Okay. So we were in, um, the rural church in Missouri for um, almost six years Mm -hmm. and we were there during our, um, our, both of our seminary tenures. Um, my, our daughter was born there. Um, and there were a lot of wonderful things about the congregation. You know, they really taught us so much about what it means to shepherd. Um, they sat through some probably pretty bad sermons as we were learning and um, all those things. And they were kind in many ways. Um, but there was also some really challenging things about that congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were really seeking to model it a different, a unique way, a different way of ministry. And um, as sometimes happens in churches, um, there were just some, just some painful things that happened. Um, and I don't want to, you know, necessarily go into too much of that in detail other than to say that there were just some really painful days. And um, there were times where we felt like, I would say, Tommy, it's time for us to transition. Like, this is too hard. This is too painful. And he would be like, no, I don't feel released. Right. Like, dang it. And so then we would switch. And later on, I'd be like, Tommy's like, we got to get out of here. And I'm like, no, I don't feel that. Like, I'm no, I'm tethered. Mm. We got to stay. And um, finally there was kind of some shenanigans that went on. Um, And I realized like, this was no longer a safe space for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a matter of time. And so we pursued counsel with our DS, which is Dr. Jan Rao at the time, who just really affirmed us in our ministry and our calling as he has for so many and yeah. just said, you have been so faithful, but let's, let's, let's move on. And just gave us that permission. I think I needed, mm-hmm. um, to pursue that. And the Lord confirmed that through scripture and through some other um, means as well. And within, <laughs> within seriously, I think 10 days, of releasing our resume, we got a call from the DS in Idaho. And he said, I have this church. And you see, they had co-pastors before and they loved it. And I told them, um, that's never going to happen again. So get over it, figure it out. And then I got your resume in the mail. 
<laughs> and so uh, we went out there to Idaho to interview, and it was actually Dustin and Olivia, uh, Dustin and Olivia Metcalf's church, and they had left to go be the chaplains at NNU. Mm. So we went up there, and I, I was so intimidated, partly because I just really looked up to Olivia as a woman in ministry and her preaching, yeah. and I'm like, I can't break the gap. They're gonna think I have to be like her, and but they didn't. They there was so much space there, and it just was so clear that the Lord was drawing that congregation and us into this unique partnership. Mm. And um, we came, and it was. A beautiful partnership from the very beginning. Um, I felt very affirmed and I felt very loved. Um, it took a long time for me, for some of the skittish, skittishness to kind of uh, diminish. You know, I would get yeah. stomach aches before every board meeting. I mean, all the things mm. from the, just the kind of the, the hurt from that last place, but they were a place uh, of healing and of love. Um, and so I felt so blessed to serve with them and alongside them. Mm -hmm. Um, and my hope, my dream was, you know, we were going to be there for a decade. Like that's really what I imagined. We were going to be there as long as the Lord would allow us to serve. And, um, so when this opportunity with Mount Vernon came, I was like, okay, well, but it was one of those things that, um, just continue to eat at your mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think when I first said, yeah, sure. I'll submit my CV. No problem. I think there was some ego there like sweet i got asked to do this you know there was some ego there but then that was like september of last year radio silence mm. for like two months because mm. they were doing a lot of um accreditation stuff and they were re kind of reimagining what they wanted this chaplaincy to look like anyway and so and during that time during that time a parishioner who is a wild card let me tell you what came in and says i have a word of the lord for you and oh. I was like, mm, I'm sure you do, friend. I'm sure you do. Um, because when that happens, you immediately think like, you crazy, or yeah. you have an agenda, or you want the new carpet, or you know, whatever silly thing. But I was like, mm. okay, sure. He's like, we'll be meeting, um, what do you say? We'll be meeting six times for an hour over the next two months. And I'm like, oh, will we now? will, you know? And so I was like, okay, fine. Uh, but I really did love this man. You know, he was my, um, and that's what I'd asked of the Lord. Like, I don't care if we're successful. I just help me love these people. And he answered that prayer. So I mm. love this man. I was like, okay, we're going to walk in. So he walks in and the first couple sessions are really disorienting. He's kind of talking to us about his own experience of faith. And then he gets up in my face, like up in my face. Mm. And it's like, you, my friend have so many gifts and you act all tough, but you are so fragile. And you have got to get out of that pulpit. It's oh. filling you. Your ego is taking over. Uh, we will not be your trophy. And uh, you need to figure this out. That you are the beloved of God, apart from anything that you do. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say at this point. Because it's like he has ripped off my clothes. Like, that's mm. a horrible metaphor. But I feel so exposed. Mm. Um, all of these wounds of feeling the need to prove myself. And this, the gender issues. And I'd had some challenges with some leadership and um, in the denomination. And... And I just really felt like I was hustling always to prove myself as being worthy and competent, all those things. And I love preaching more than anything. And I'm like, I'm the best. Like, I'm going to do this, right? Bring it. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I have a, a series planned on Ruth. Like, I'm not stepping. I'm not going to stop preaching. And he goes, either you stop preaching or, you know, basically the Lord's discipline is, mm. is headed your way, basically. Like, he's like, this, he's like, this will be toxic for you. And I... I don't really, I started, I yelled at him. I spoke um, some unkind things. Like I lost it. it. Like my anger just came out in that moment. And um, he met me in that angry space and says, we love you, but we will not be your trophy. And that was a hard word to hear. Mm. Hard word to hear, especially if you're an Enneagram three, if you roll in that stuff, 
all the wounds. Just let's poke them. Let's pour some salt in it and rub it around. Mm. Um, and so I did for, I want to say eight to 10 weeks. I stepped out of the pulpit. I didn't tell anybody why only Tommy really knew. Um, I was able to write about it finally later on in a, in a blog, but, um, about that experience. But during that time, um, the Lord just broke me down in some really um, important ways. Um, releasing me or beginning the process of releasing me from ego and from needing to impress and needing to prove myself and just letting myself just sit in the um, identity as beloved. Mm. Um, every single time I went to service, every book I read, everything pointed to the same thing of just mm. being beloved in Christ. Um, and so I didn't preach again until the new year, until January of that wow. year. And um, I um, also in that time had a bit of a relapse with some of my depression, anxiety, and started doing some treatments with that again. And, um, all of those things, this Lord working through this process of, of healing some, some wounds in me and really, um, unveiling some sin in my heart, um, just shaped me in this way that I didn't anticipate. And then going through this treatment that helps me see the world a little bit more clearly, um, February rolls around and off I go to Ohio Mm -hmm. to interview for this job. And I am in my most like clear, headed space mm-hmm. like the lord has just un like you can't touch me right now like i have been laid bare by the lord yeah. i am being you know i i am in this space and so i don't care if you like me i don't care if um i'm not going to try to fit your mold i don't even want to impress you i'm going to tell you who i am what my heart is mm-hmm. and what i would imagine this life would be like and the lord met us in that space and within a few weeks, they offered me the job and the committee had voted, um, unanimously to offer the position to me in a, and that was not expected. A unanimous vote was not expected. And so, and that has nothing to do with me and all to do with the spirit and what he, the spirit is, is doing in me and in this, in this school, like they're ready for a female chaplain. I'm ready to step into my own space. And, um, the Lord has just been so good. Although I will tell you the last, however long was, ex- that was excruciating to go through that process. And in the midst of that, hello, I was writing a book, which is extremely personal. And so every chapter I'm like laying my soul on the paper. And so, um, man, this past year has been so formative. And I think in, in every possible way has prepared me into this new space. Because I think if I had come into this role, um, a year ago, it would have just, it would have been toxic. Yeah. That the attention, the the accolade, the position, it would have been toxic to my soul. But now, in a way, I feel so affirmed in the Lord that these things, like, cool, that's awesome. But it rolls off. Mm. And I continue, I'm letting that roll off and stepping into deeper into my belovedness. Um, and it protects me, I think, in a way from some of the, the power hungry, you know, the jostling for position and whatever else. So mm. lots more to learn, but that's where I'm at. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me about the book. What, what made you want to write a book? Yeah. What was it like to write a book? Yeah. Tell me that story. Okay. So I've always written some, I mainly wrote, I've written curriculum for the nomination and various things. And, um, a couple of years ago, well, it was probably 2016. I had a significant relapse in my depression and went through a really um, intense treatment it involved a giant magnet zapping my head um (laughs) just 
it had to go beyond medication. Like I was in a really dark space. And after that, like the church during that time though, they met the Idaho church met me in that space. They like made a meal train for me. Like they're bringing me a hot, like a hot dish, you know, the sacrament of the casserole as Rachel Hollevins <laughs> calls it. Right. And um, that's what it is, man. It nourished my soul. And so I came on other space and I wrote what I called a love letter to my church. And I just wrote a letter to them. It was a two year anniversary of coming to that place. And I just said, um, how deeply I loved them and how um, I had prayed not for success and not for, not for numbers and not for, you know, I want all those things, but Lord help me to love these people. And you have been just, you know, embedded into my heart. And in, when I was so broken, you came and met me, not with criticism, not like, why isn't she in the office? But rather you came to me with your hot dishes and your casseroles and your love and mm -hmm. your space and your kindness. And so it was this love letter to my church. Well, a friend, I, um, um, Dana, Dana, I think it was Dana Prussia, I think, shared it on an NTS blog and a couple of friends of mine shared it. Well, an editor from Christianity Today found it and picked it up and asked me to start writing for her, uh, for what was womanleaders.com at the time. And so that just started this new journey, like, oh, maybe I have something to say. And so I started writing just a little bit by little bit, um, basically kind of creative nonfiction. So integrating little bits of my story with certain themes, you know, my path mm -hmm. to the pulpit or a lot of them were just pastoral in nature for CT pastors or to Chris, you know, women leaders, all those kind of things. Um, but then that fall, and I started blogging as well, but then that winter, it was like December, it was like a few days before Christmas of 2017. My, um, I opened my email and I had a, a letter, an email from someone I didn't know um, saying she was an editor of a pub house and she'd been reading my work and wanted to know if I was interested if I had a book project in the works. Hmm. I did not have a book project in the works. Okay. <laughs> um, that was beyond the scope of anything I imagined. And hmm. so, but I had some thoughts, I had some, some ideas. And so um, we had a meeting in January, I'll be a phone. And I said, this is kind of the thought I had. For a long time, particularly after my a difficult you know time in Missouri, this idea, this concept of resurrection, has been really just at the forefront of my mind. We had been in this mired in this church conflict. We were like 18 months into our tenure there, and I um, had this really nasty conflict. And for us, it felt like fatal. Like this is the end of the road, you know, because mm. you're the new church pastors, the first time you've offended someone. And so the DS again, Jaron comes in. To help moderate which was so generous of him like it was not that serious looking back but for, for us it was it was mm. such a painful time and so after i was really hoping like he was gonna scold them for being so mean um and but he didn't and i was like Ugh. and you know, he should have probably scolded us but he didn't which was very gracious instead mm. he asked this question he said okay now we have to ask is the resurrection enough to bring us through to the other side of this and at mm. the time like i didn't understand the question um, what does the resurrection have to do with this? And uh, through the course of, um, I took a class with Dr. Johnson, several courses actually, um, that helped me on just kind of wrestle with that question. What does the resurrection have to say to us now? Mm -hmm. um, not just the long someday, like we'll be raised with Christ, this new creation, but what does it have to say now? Am I just supposed to sit, you know, like, oh, we've promised you this heavenly feast, but right now just starve to death. No, just read this menu to kind of take mm -hmm. the edge off, right? Of what's yeah. to come. But like, what does the resurrection and the power that is at work in us and around us actually have to say to some of the ordinary deaths of our life. Like I don't have some dramatic story of miscarriage or divorce or disease or chronic illness or pain. You know, I just have all this kind of ordinary stuff, you know, of disappointment and of, 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 of zeal, like being on fire for the Lord and then going through painful deconstruction. And 
can God resurrect anything worthwhile from that? And the, the death of my expectations when I'm like, I am called to ministry and then experiencing pushback as a female, like having to process that. And what can God resurrect in me through that? And the death of the future I had imagined, the death of the image I had created for myself. And they're all so ordinary and things that I think all of us probably experience in some measure. Um, and so the question I asked throughout the book is, what does the resurrection have to say to this, this ordinary losses, these deaths in our life? Mm-hmm. And so each chapter, I kind of wrestle with that. So the chapter, um, um, the death of zeal, for example, I just wrestle with how I first felt called to ministry. And I was so zealous for the Lord and on fire for the Lord, that, that phrase that we use on fire for the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I contrast, I kind of weave it together with the story of, of Paul, um, who, you know, Saul as he yep. was this zealous, zealous for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about my own process of, of realizing as I'm looking around at the church and we're doing all these attractional events and doing all these things and I'm on fire. And yet I feel like what's happening here. Like the, my youth group at the time had developed kind of a toxicity about it in terms mm-hmm. of the community and, they're just some painful stuff. And um, I felt like we were just trying to attract, like out, uh, one of my professors, he described it, trying to out MTV, MTV, like trying to out cool culture. You know what I mean? And if yeah. we could just get them in with this cool game, like we're going to get mm-hmm. them saved. But oh, but by the way, also don't like be friends with them because they could corrupt you. Right. Mm. And so wrestling with my, my own zeal and then paralleling that a little bit with Saul's and how um, we both for him is a dramatic moment in time where he realized his zeal is pointed in the wrong direction. Mm. He's zealous for the Lord, but it is directed towards Torah and temple, not toward the embodied Christ, not toward God in the flesh. And for me, I think my zeal was so oriented. It was really, you know, around myself and around evangelicalism in this, we have to, you know, even, um, convert, 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 and, and yet somehow stay apart from the church, or from, from the outsider, and so we don't get, like, tainted or corrupted, and so wrestling with that, and then going through this process of zeal, you know, burning out in me, I arrived at college at Mid-America, and was just like, man, I just started college, I'm already burnt out, if you make me plan one more party with a weird theme, dude, I'm out, you know, I just, I, it felt so false, and it, I felt exhausted, and I was mm-hmm. 19, And so, um, it was this process of deconstruction of, of saying, no, the Lord has called us to serve a King in a kingdom and to orient ourselves toward this King, towards this kingdom and embodying that kingdom, um, both in the church, but also beyond the church. So creating this community in which people are drawn to that, not because of how cool we are, how flashy our stuff is, but because how we love one another and going out into the community and embodying that kingdom way. And so it's really the, um, the death of my zeal creates this opportunity for God to resurrect something far more faithful within me Mm -hmm. um, of of, uh, devotion and faithfulness to this King and this kingdom, not to my own zealous missionary agenda. And so that's, that's just one example of how I um, integrate my own life with like a narrative from scripture based on kind of the death I've experienced and trying to highlight and look for those signs of resurrection life Mm -hmm. that um, are trying to burst through the soil um, in the midst of, are flailing around. Yeah. Um, well, just logistically, like what is the book called and where can people find it and all yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff? Um, it is called Signs of Life, um, Resurrecting Hope from Ordinary Loss. And you can find it pretty much anywhere. You can find it at Amazon, uh, Christian Books. You can find it at Herald Press. That's my publisher is Herald Press. It doesn't actually launch until October 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it will be live. So you can pre-order it now. But um, I will have, I've sent it out today, but I'll put it on my website as well. 
Um, they're letting me release the intro in the first chapter for free mm -hmm. as a PDF download um, for people to see. And then Shannon Green, uh, another Nazarene, um, NTS grad and all that stuff, mm -hmm. she has actually been contracted to write the study guide. So they're going to make it into, so you can do it like a group, like a book group. So you can read through the chapter and then kind of discuss these themes, these mm -hmm. biblical stories and narratives, but also that my intention, my hope is that they'll be able them to process um, the ordinary deaths of their own life um, mm. and find, be able to develop eyes to see God's resurrection power in the work there. So mm. that's my hope for the, for the book as it launches into the world. Mm. So um, one of the things that I keep hearing is this kind of women in ministry theme. And I'm wondering, um, maybe you could talk about that as a story, like where you've seen our denomination before, what kind of hope you have for us, what it might look like to be a woman in ministry in the future, your experience as a woman in ministry, all that stuff, whatever you feel like oh, talking about. Yeah. Well, kind of, as I alluded to before, as a child, I saw women in ministry, but they were, um, always in supportive roles. They were in mm. music, they were in children, they were in different things like that. And even when I was a kid, even the idea of imagining a female youth pastor was even a little bit disruptive yeah. to me. Um, and not because no one, someone ever said to me, you can't do these things. It was a matter of imagination of yeah. not seeing it. And so that's almost not, it's like a unicorn. Like it does that even exist. Right. Mm. Um, or like a narwhal, like that's not a thing. Oh my gosh, that's a narwhal. That's a thing, you know? And so like <laughs> later growing up and realizing this, this happens. And I think a big piece of that, as I'm sure many people will say was, um, watching, um, and, um, from a distance, um, Carla's journey yeah. from missions um, into pursuing her own vocation to, you know, associate pastor into co-DSing into being the president of the seminary. And now, you know, as our reigning queen of, as GS that we love yep. so much. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So just journey, watching her journey and her um, speaking into my life in various times that she's been able to do that. So I think, you know, over the last, however, you know, I'm th I'll be 35 pretty soon. So as a child and teen, you know, that was not, seeing women in lead pastorate roles was certainly not on the forefront. That was still kind of, I think, um, in recovery mode from mm. the um, influences of fundamentalism and um, the reaction against the women's movement and all those things. But as I've seen, even uh, since I've been in college, just the emerging space that we have for women in ministry to, um, to serve the Lord in whatever way they're called, um, that's a wonderful, wonderful gift. Mm. Um, with the DSs that I've worked with, with Jaron, he always, always affirmed me and always called me pastor. I was a child, you know, I truly was, I was like 23 and then he addressed <laughs> me as pastor. And it was like, he was helping shape that vocation and identity in me, mm. um, that I was not even fully ready to embrace myself. And so, um, I always look back to those moments when he asked, he said, pastor, will you pray for me? and how formative that was for me. Mm. Um, that wasn't always my experience. I had other experiences with um, other leadership that um, would, for example, create create opportunities for young millennial pastors to come and gather and to talk about the balancing the life of, of ministry, but also um, home life. Um, and it was an email that came to both my husband and I. I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. And so, But the email had been addressed to, to like guys or gentlemen or something. Mm. So I wasn't being facetious at all, but I did respond back to the email just to clarify, like, can, I'm assuming I'm coming to this and you know, whatever. Got the email back. Yeah, no, this is for men um, because mm. they need help balancing home life and work life. And as I'm received, reading this email, I kid you know, I'm six months pregnant. Oh. I am writing a sermon on the Magnificat 
and I have Crock-Pot in the dinner, or dinner in the Crock-Pot, and I have to pick up my kid for preschool. And I'm <sighs> thinking, yeah, yeah, about that. Mm. So we have this like lengthy dialogue about that, and that was a really a painful, several painful interactions um, that I just realized we're not done. We're not done. We got mm. stuff to do in yeah. this particular field. Um, and I think part of that resistance caused me to kind of push harder and push harder to prove myself, which for me had some toxic consequences that I've had to wrestle with. Um, but now as I'm seeing, you know, we have Carla as this GS and we have um, other chaplains that are female, like there's me, but there's also Lynn Bollinger, ENC. There mm -hmm. is, um, Shauna was at Trebekah for a season. Um, Olivia Dustin, our co-chaplains co at the university. So our universities are modeling this in some really significant ways. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing more gender diversity amongst our um, um, our professors at the universities in mm -hmm. all forums. And um, we have the amazing and brilliant Jeannie Sorrell here at Mount Vernon. Yes. So we are so grateful and lucky for that, mm -hmm. to have that. But at NDS as well, they're bringing in these visiting professors and doing um, all kinds of good work and expanding um, just the voice of women. Um, not as some like, oh, let's bring in the token female, but truly creating space for, for the female voice. Um, mm. And I'm really grateful for that. I think we have a lot of work to do still on the ground. Um, a lot of churches often say, um, and I've heard this said, um, I think it was, was it said when I came to Idaho? Yeah, it was by one particular individual. Um, we had been encouraged to, fee to seek out like a female pastor, you know, and I just, I, I just thought, you know, it's not, what if she was here alone in the building? And, you know, it's, it's we, we really affirm that, but just like not here mm. or like not now. And that mm. seems to be the refrain of a lot of places like, oh, that's great. We affirm that, but not here, not this context or, oh, not yet. And so I, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of over that. Yeah. response, the not here, not now thing. Um, yes, here and yes now. And if it's not, um, if your contact has issues with that, then we need to re that we need to be intentional about our education of our, of our lady. That's our responsibility as clergy. So, um, that's not really a, an argument that's going to carry a lot of weight with me personally yeah. uh, to say, Oh, it's great over there, but not here. Um, yeah, that's not going to work. We need to own this as our identity as, mm. as Nazarenes and Wesleyans. So and that's been my experience, but I'm so hopeful. I'm so, so hopeful. Um, our ministry majors are just teeming with brilliant young women mm. and they are seeing people, they are seeing women in the pulpit mm. in important forums. And I don't say important to denigrate like the local pulpit, but I'm um, amplifying the voice of women um, in a way that and in forms in which they will be seen by many um, mm -hmm. is really important. Um, yeah. The fact that uh, like Shauna was one of the keynote speakers at NYC was um, so necessary, not because simply she's female, but because she is brilliant, she is humble, and she has a word from the Lord. Mm -hmm. And we need to create space for that. And so for all these students, they will not be like me. They will not sit in that chair and think, well, I've never seen a woman in pet ministry before, so I must right. pursue missions. But if you're called to missions, great, do that thing, but not because you've not seen something else. Mm. And so my prayer has always been like all these little girls that have sat in the pews and watched me preach and all these little boys that are someday going to serve in these different ways. Like they will never have the excuse to say, well, I've never seen that done. Yeah. It will never be strange because mm me and you and Shauna and Olivia and all these wonderful gifted women have said yes to the call and stepped up even when it was uncomfortable. And so I hope that any resistance that I've faced, which is nothing compared to the generations before me, like I think mm. of the Ninas and I think of what they endured, um, they broke down barriers. We continue to break down barriers. And so 
someday, maybe for my daughter Jojo, who is six, um, maybe someday it will not even cross someone's mind to think, how strange, a female. Mm. So my daughter, I'll tell you this little tidbit. When she, this, I think of how her imagination has been shaped. Uh, she was baptized this past Easter, and it was mm. such a privilege to to baptize my own child. But anyway, we get home, and she's looking at her baptismal certificate, and she says, "So this means I can preach now, right?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, it absolutely does." You go, girl. Mm, love you it. go, Jojo. And so I just, for me, of course, that just is a mom moment, but also just to say it will never be strange. Mm. What will be strange for her will be to someone to suggest that she is somehow less than or unqualified because of her gender. For her, mm. that will be strange. Yeah. And thanks be to God. Ugh. What would you want a young woman to hear who's about to go into ministry? What what advice would you have for a young woman who's graduating college, kind of figuring out what's next? What what would you want her to know going in? Well, um, I certainly want to affirm and encourage them to do the hard work that is required mm. to become um, a pastor that can serve faithfully. And that for me, that, that entails committing yourself deeply to the educational process. Mm. Um, undergraduate program, vital. I would even say seminary, vital, but Mm. you know, I'm like that. Um, Devote yourself to the preparation. Um, Do your absolute best, not because you have to prove yourself, but because that's the church is worth your best. Mm. Um, So prepare yourself as best you can. Um, Seek out those um, who can encourage and support you, um, particularly in the days when you do feel isolated as a woman in ministry, because for this particular season, we still are the minority and that's okay. But we need to, um, during the times where we feel discouraged, we feel like I'm the only one doing this. Mm. Um, We need to find people that we can connect with that can affirm that. Um, One thing I'll say is um, there was a a pastor, her name is Deanna Hayden. She's in Kansas City still. And and she was that for me. Uh, We were Mm. co-pastoring up at the time. And it was kind of that season of life. Like, we're going to have kids. We're going to do that. And, And I was like, I just don't know if that works with ministry and oh by the way we're super poor can we even do this you know and (laughs) and I watched her navigate that she um was a lead pastor and um had children and and walked through that time of life where they didn't have a lot of funds and how they navigated that space and how she you know seeks to be the this devoted mother but also live in her vocation fully and she I watched her and she modeled that for me um so so very well and gave me I think the courage to 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 embark on that next adventure. So find people that you can look to and seek out um, um, for encouragement and resource. Um, But I would also say, tend to your own soul. Um, Mm. Do not neglect the work of your soul because you're hustling to, to, to make it work. Um, Mm. I've certainly done both things. I've, I've hustled and I've, I've done my best and I've been rewarded for that work and I've been acknowledged for that work. And, um, and I've, and I've done, I think I've done good work, but there were seasons in which my soul suffered because I was, I was, I was striving, mm. striving so, so deeply. I think because I had given into this lie that I am uh, what people think about me as a noun would say, or I am what I achieve. Um, and so tend to your own soul and um, find people who can speak words of wisdom, whether it's a spiritual director or a mentor or something like that. Um, that can help you um, navigate those those spaces so that you can pursue ministry faithfully and mm. live into that and give yourself wholeheartedly to that work, but not at the cost of your soul, not at the cost of disconnecting from your heart, um, and um, not at the cost of, of 
boosting one's ego to a toxic place in some ways. Mm. Like apparently I found myself um, in a year ago, but anyway, um, tend to your soul so that the Lord can not just work through you, but can do the good work in you. Um, that's key. Um, we're called to be his followers first and his servants second. So That's great. I think that's really good advice. Before I ask you what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene, I'm wondering if I could tweak it a little bit and say, what is it that's giving you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? What are you looking forward to? Where do you see signs of life? Mm, Signs of life. Um, So many different places. Um, I see it in my fellow clergy that are doing um, just good and faithful work. Um, I just met recently with um, Emily and James Laker, and they're doing some um, just real intentional um, mission work in Cleveland, empowering mm-hmm. the local congregations to work cooperatively, but to truly live missionally in some in some radical ways. And um, people like them who are giving their lives away in um, in ways that we would formerly have considered unconventional mm-hmm. um, are now they are normal they are um, normalizing that for us um, this missional life. Um, I. Th- Think of um, the young people that are rising up and saying, okay, it's no longer okay to treat outsiders in this way. Mm. Um, I think of of the difficult conversations we're having around um, um, ostracized um, groups around the LGBT community and around around even issues like creation care, um, things like Mm. that, that are, they're important issues. And I find our young people um, are brave and they are ready to have those things and have those conversations. Um, I don't know that we'll always land on the same side of certain issues, but I think as we learn to have this charitable discourse and say, I love you, and we've come to different conclusions on some of these things, but we are moving forward in faithfulness, serving the church. um, That's what gives me hope is not people coming down hard and heavy with their zealous, this is what I believe and this is what it says, and rah, rah, but rather people that are developing hospitable spirits mm. that says um, that this is who I am in Christ. And um, I know that you are also made in the image of God and let us dialogue together and not get our egos mixed up in this agenda, but rather seek the Lord faithfully and seeing people model that um, is giving me great, great hope. Um, I am so excited for the semester to start with these students um, so I can journey with them as they're processing those things Mm. um, and see what the Lord is calling this generation to do. Um, And I am so privileged to get like the firsthand look of that um, and my new role. And I am so grateful for the chance to invest in them in a unique way. So I'm so hopeful with our universities and our students. I'm so hopeful about people like the Lakers that are doing and people out in Northern Cal as well doing um, like Alicia McClintock and others like that doing just really um, um, non-traditional, I suppose you could call it work, you know, where they're saying all part of my life is my pastoral service, my writing life, my, my, he, James is a chaplain, I think for the army, um, um, and the other just different ministries that people are doing, creating workspaces that are, mm. that are collaborative, um, finding unique ways to enter into authentic community with people to, to model kingdom life. Um, that is so exciting to me. Mm. Um, but there's also, and I have to say this, I think I say this because of my six years I was in rural Missouri and four and a half, not quite so rural, but still rural Idaho, mm-hmm. is that I'm also, I look at these pastors, you know, I come to district assembly and, um, and sometimes we kind of go about assembly because, you know, we play the stats game and that can really be disheartening sometimes. But I see yeah. these pastors, many of whom um, are making very little money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them who are working several jobs or, you know, juggling these different things um, to make it work, but who are faithfully giving their lives away for the sake of the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not flashy and they're never going to get a book deal and no one's ever going to bring them up on stage. But I look at them and I see lives of faithfulness and the Lord sees those lives of the Lord sees those lives of faithfulness as well. Those pastors devoting themselves to their parish in good and faithful ways. And for me, um, it humbles me, but it mm. also gives me great hope. Um, the Lord is still calling and empowering and that we're saying yes, um, no matter what that context looks like. I love that. Mm. Um, if somebody's inspired by all these things that you've talked about for us, where could they reach you? How could they find you? Well, they can, I have a website. You can reach out to me there. It's just stephanielobdell.com, straightforward. But I'm on social media too, on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. So um, feel free to reach out. I try to be really timely about answering those things. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the show. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I really welcome the opportunity. And thank you for the good work you're doing and just amplifying unique voices so that we can uh, come together as a Nazarene family. Yeah, that's, that's the hope, right? That is the